It all started with that portable tape recorder I had as a kid. Uh oh. Then I started pause button editing between two VCRs. Oh my god. Oh my god. The figure's dead. The crazy thing is, then I got into radio. Mr. Announcer? Yum. Oh my god. Thank you very much. After that, I went into TV. My whole life, the tape has been rolling, which is fine by me because I always think there's a story to be told. But a word of warning from everyone around me Do not give this tape to Earl. back friends to don't give this tape to Earl the fact that you were listening to this makes it very obvious that someone did in fact give me a tape and by golly I'm using it now if you remember a while back if you're a patreon supporter of the logbook.com I dropped a note to you on patreon indicating that with all of the stuff going on with my then imminent move which has now been completed I needed to press pause on the process of rewriting and re-recording the logbook.com's escape pod daily podcast, which is a little thing where I cover sci-fi history every day. Now, that's right, Puck. Since June, I had been updating and completely re-recording every show and got about a quarter of the year done before real-world considerations had to take priority. But now I have a little bit of, uh, a little bit of further news for you. Uh, some of you already know this, some of you don't. The escape pod actually isn't coming back. Now, it has been a huge amount of fun to do the escape pod since I began recording it in 2013. Now, did you know that I started researching and writing a lot of the material in 2011? Because at the time, I was thinking, oh, this could be a web show. I'm going to make a video piece out of this. And then something happened with the Avid video editing system that I was working on and the computer literally fried. Like it ate a gigantic surge and never recovered. And so I was effectively out of the video business after several years of having done stuff like the original Phosphor.Fossils DVDs and the classic gaming expo DVDs. But once I started recording the escape pod in 2013, and even though it required, you know, it's kind of a, it's kind of a funny thing, a daily podcast. You're, you're taking a radio approach to a podcasting problem. And the problem with a Today in History podcast, especially if you were formatting it the way that I was formatting it, is that it has to be updated every couple of years. But an opportunity has arisen for me to transfer the experience, the research, some of the writing, and even my voice to a new project that, as I record this, is mere days away from making its debut. Part of what's been taking up the time I had been devoting to the escape pod has been a lot of writing, demo recording, rewriting, re-recording, auditioning, refining, and shaping this new project, which will also do the Today in Sci-Fi history thing, but in a slightly different way. And... It's a show that will not be originating from thelogbook.com, which is where I normally launch my projects. But I was brought in to be part of this other project, and this time it's actually becoming part of my paycheck. So there is now officially you know, a, a payoff for the years of work that I put into the Escape Pod. The Escape Pod episodes will be archived at thelogbook.com slash podcast for the foreseeable future. I see no reason for that not to happen. But the project itself has come to an end, and the pod has come in for a landing. All I can tell you is to visit the show page at thelogbook.com slash this tape. In the entry for this episode, there is a link to the master RSS feed for the Roddenberry Podcast Network. You can also find that at podcasts.roddenberry.com. There is a master rss feed where all of the roddenberry podcasts come through and that is where the new show will first be appearing in the first week of january 2021 um i hope you'll join me over there it's, it's not just me working on it i am one of several writers i am one of several voices and there are some very well-known voices in on this project. I am, you know, I, I am easily the, uh, the least known out of all these people in all likelihood. You'll know it when you hear it. 
my involvement with the new podcast is as a writer and producer, and once, maybe occasionally twice a week, I will be the host of it. We're all really excited for you to hear it. space because there's nowhere to go from there but up it's kind of interesting we had this announcement in uh, in late 2020 that they had found phosphines in the atmosphere of venus which that was exciting because as far as we know from chemistry that occurs on earth phosphines occur as a byproduct of organic life on earth it was very tempting to assign that same explanation to what had been detected in the Venusian atmosphere. But my thinking at the time was we also couldn't rule out the possibility that there was some natural process of which we are not aware that's creating phosphines and spewing them into the atmosphere of Venus naturally. Uh, we just don't know. And in any case, further studies have brought to light the possibility that the you know this exciting discovery of phosphines on Venus... Uh, may have been a spectrographic misread. So, how excited should anyone be about this announcement? Nah, I don't know, but this lets me get on my soapbox once more and reiterate, for the record, we need to be sending at least as many robots to Venus as we are to Mars. Mars is relatively easy. There's no crushing atmospheric pressure there. It's not hot as a blast oven there. But do you know what planet is really starting to resemble Venus? Uh, our planet, because of how we are affecting the climate. If Earth is to have a future, maybe we need to be shining more of a light on Venus, studying it more, because somewhere in the process of figuring out how to build robots that can survive on Venus, we may learn how to survive on what we are turning Earth into. There have been another couple of test flights of the SpaceX Starship, the big silver thing that looks like a giant, shiny, flying hot water cooler. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of Elon Musk as a person, but I don't ever write off SpaceX. The second test was to get to, I believe it was 12 kilometers, and then lay the ship over on its side in mid-flight and hover, and then bring it in for a landing. It got all of that perfect until the landing, at which point it just came down way too fast and went kaboom in a big way. It was a, it was a very big explosion, which, you know, you've still got fuel in the tanks because it's holding on to fuel for landing. So it comes down that hard. Yeah, it's going to blow up real good. And sadly, the Arecibo Radio Observatory, as we knew it, is no more. In November, it had already been announced that the Arecibo facility would be decommissioned due to evidence that the enormous steel tension cables suspending a 900-ton focusing element over Arecibo's giant in-ground receiver dish, those cables were failing. And it was not even going to be safe for people to get up there to repair those cables. Apparently, the entire thing was closer to structural failure than expected because early on the morning of December 1st, Another cable broke, allowing that 900-ton platform to smash into the dish, doing irreparable damage to both. Now, on Facebook, I posted this news with the preface that there will never be another quite like it, to which somebody immediately posted, and I expected they would, uh, the Wikipedia entry for the FAST radio telescope in China. Now, I was already aware of the FAST, but even though it's a bigger, deeper dish, which kind of makes it sound more like a pizza than a radio telescope, and suddenly I'm hungry... The FAST is incapable of transmitting, so it cannot take on the radar functions that Arecibo could do, which was very, very handy for characterizing near-Earth asteroids. And so that's a capability that we have kind of lost with Arecibo. So yeah, I know someone's gone and kind of done their own Arecibo on another continent, but it's not the same, and... Chances are we will never see another one like it. 
Now, uh, other Chinese space news. The Chang'e 5 lunar lander did something no one has done since the 70s. It went to the moon, gathered core samples, which included some subsurface lunar regolith, tamped those samples into containers, and then launched those samples back to Earth. So if you ever have fantasies of a second Cold War spurring the United States back to the moon, well, hey, shots fired. Now, some samples have also been returned from much further away. Japan's Hayabusa 2 probe ended its primary mission by delivering a capsule with surface and subsurface material gathered from asteroid Ryugu, and that capsule parachuted down safely near Woomera, Australia, to await pickup. The Hayabusa 2 probe itself, even though it can no longer gather or return samples, is being redirected to study and photograph other asteroids in the solar system, so hopefully it can meet as many of those objectives as it can before its fuel supply is spent. Because of the difficulty of returning pieces of an asteroid versus digging a lunar core sample from a moon that's already orbiting Earth, the difference in sample size is significant. Chang'e 5's lunar samples are measured in kilograms, while the samples of asteroid Ryugu are measured in mere milligrams. Either one is quite an amazing thing to have returned to Earth by real-life outer space robots. It's kind of cool, this whole living in the future thing. All of the current missions en route to Mars are going smoothly. So again, if anyone can lay hands on mission pins for the Emirates Mars mission, or Tianwen-1, the Chinese Mars lander, for the Cloak of Geekitude, that would be super cool. So now we come to the main topic of this edition of Don't Give This Tape to Earl, a little something I call Showrunner, the home game. Now how great would it be to be the executive producer who decides the creative shape of a whole season of TV, lays out the broad strokes of what'll happen, and then gathers a whole room full of talented writers, both grizzled veterans and up-and-comers, and sets them loose on the detail work. Of course that would be great, but also really demanding. And yet, just as a fun creative exercise, as a focus for spitballing a bunch of ideas, blowing them up as big as possible, and then reining them in, defining characters, plot lines, and so forth, it's almost like writing without doing the writing. It's just outlining writ large. And that's kind of what stops this short of being actual fanfic. It's like show running without the whole room full of writers. It's a show running without a show. It's window shopping at the idea store. The first time I distinctly remember doing this was sometime in the fall of 92, when I sat down and wrote out what I thought the next Star Trek spinoff would be after this whole Deep Space Nine thing that was coming up. And not wanting to brag too much, what I sat down and wrote out in outline form predicted the vague outlines of Star Trek Voyager surprisingly accurately. I was wide of the mark where specific characters were concerned, but I did predict that the next Star Trek spin-off would fling a lone Federation ship far enough away from the Federation that they would effectively be on their own. And keep in mind that I did this at a time when all we had for Deep Space Nine was a few photos and TV guide and a very broad idea of the show's setting. I showed my lost ship idea to one or two friends back in 92, basically just, hey, there's this fun little writing exercise I did. And since then, it's just become this thing that I do. It's just a neat little focused creative exercise. It's focused in that you're trying to think of something that could reasonably be produced. And if you're trying to fit something into an existing property, you're challenged by trying to stay within the bounds, you know, and the mythos and the lore of what's already been established. And yet, you can still find where the elastic is that can be stretched. I mean, I guess maybe it's like brainstorming fanfic without actually writing it out as long-form prose. So, just for fun, I will let you in on some of my ideas that uh, I have jotted down over the years. That at some point it finally occurred to me, you know what, nothing is going to happen with these because I have, like, no Hollywood connections whatsoever. I might as well just put them into a podcast. So one of my first ideas was, Disney Plus, please take note, doing a TV series based on Tron. Uh, 
I had an idea sometime after the computer game Tron 2.0 came out, but a few years before Tron Legacy was a thing that we knew was going to happen. I'd formulated an idea for a series version of Tron, though it's quite unlike either Tron 2.0 or Tron Legacy, in that it would have left NCOM and Flynn and company in the rearview mirror. It would not have dealt with the characters we know at all, except that the laser teleportation system from the first movie would have been handed off to the government, where it would have wound up in the hands of the intelligence agencies. Hold that thought. The setup for the show would have been kind of like a 70-30 ratio of live-action to CGI, along the lines of reboot for the computer world, rather than trying to do the computer world as even partial live-action. It would have imposed some actual computer logic onto that world, dealing with things like packets and encryption. There's one particular packet that has to be escorted by a particular video warrior. Let's call him Risk. Uh, spell that R-I-S-C as a nod to Tron's long-standing appropriation of acronyms that have absolutely nothing to do with the characters. So Risk is going to escort this packet to its destination. He's a little nervous about the fact that he's supposed to be walking this highly sensitive encrypted packet through some fairly heavily populated systems. In the first episode, the route he is supposed to travel with this packet brings him into contact with the other characters who will be part of the show going forward, but we learn the hard way that the packet contains a virus, which our boy Risk then has to contain before it infects the entire system, and it puts up one hell of a fight to avoid being corralled, but it can't be let loose in the grid. That's the important thing. Risk is now more interested in trapping the thing so it can be probed to learn about its origins. But this particular virus is smart enough that once it figures out what's going on, it switches from a purely defensive mode to an offensive mode. Risk neutralizes it, but without finding out where it's from. We find out, though, because we cut to the real world, and there's a monitor sitting in an office. Whose office? We don't know, because we haven't met this person yet. But what's on the monitor is a flashing dialog box indicating that the program has been terminated and access has been denied. We keep zooming out to show the whole monitor, whose desktop wallpaper tells us that whoever launched this intrusion did so from a computer within the Department of Homeland Security. That's the end of Episode 1. We would go on to find out that based on incident reports from what happened to Flynn in the first movie, and based on their own experiments with the same hardware, someone in the intelligence community has been paying the computer world a visit. Tron may have scattered the master control program to the winds, but once the intelligence community learned what the MCP was capable of, they want to fish the MCP out of the recycle bin, defragment him, and put him to work for them. And somewhere along the way, they might get close to doing that, but our characters in the real world, including Risk's user, would learn that maybe the MCP is even less inclined to be under the thumb of users now than he used to be. Piecing the MCP back together colossally bad idea, and it would definitely make Risk's life and his user's life a lot more difficult. Now, I know that we did eventually get an animated TV series out of Tron called Tron Uprising, which I liked a lot, by the way, because it helps to put some detail and shading into the gap between the present in Tron Legacy and the flashbacks in Tron Legacy. The idea I had, however, would have kind of rebuilt the world from the ground up, assuming that the viewer had little or no knowledge of the original movie. What else could you make a TV series out of? Okay, you're going to laugh at this. I have a great affection for the movie Twister. And don't get me wrong, in plenty of ways, it's a hugely flawed movie, including putting some of the worst, oversimplified, misunderstood crap science in front of an audience that a movie has ever done. But the real magic of the movie is the characters, and not even just the A-list people, but all of the secondary characters. All of these quirky people like Dusty and Rabbit, who kind of make up the storm-chasing knights of the round table, they make the movie. Because I have known storm-chasers before, and the thing is, they are actually a lot like those characters. Not to put too fine a point on it, but normal people do not go out and chase tornadoes. And it's really those characters that make me think there's a series in here. But you'd either have to recast everyone and start from scratch, or make someone like Alan Ruck, and make Rabbit the leader of the group, kind of making him the elder statesman of a new batch of younger characters who are as diverse and nutty and just wrong in the head as the original characters. So in a way, you would be doing Twister, the next generation. 
In some ways, Twister plays better now than it did back in the day. The whole notion that Jonas was only in it for the money barely made any sense in 1996. Whereas now you have outfits like AccuWeather that love to take a bite out of the National Weather Service and out of more academic institutions like the National Severe Storms Laboratory in Norman, Oklahoma. Which is, it's a government operation in cooperation with the University of Oklahoma. Now you really do have storm chasers who are entirely commercial. You have storm chasers who work for TV stations. You have storm chasers who are selling their services as a kind of thrill-seeking vacation operation. You've actually got more competing players now than you did in 96. So there's a whole spectrum of stories to tell, and yes, there probably is a Jonas out there. Think of the storm chasers working for the Weather Channel who died in the most recent F5 to hit the Oklahoma City area. There's a story there. Throw in things like severe weather increasing due to human-induced climate change, and you've almost got a whole story arc. You have an urgency. There's kind of an, an enemy or at least a clock to beat. Twister could totally work on TV now, and you could do it in some really fun ways. Now, I had a thought about an episode that would be kind of like a riff on Waiting for Godot, where our heroes and heroines gear up, get out there, ready to chase some storms, and no matter what they do, no matter where they lie in wait, Nothing materializes. So, no tornadoes, no FX budget, but we spend the whole thing finding out interesting stuff about the characters, like why they are out here doing this instead of holding down an office job or just working in the lab. Twister could totally work on TV. In fact, I think it could be better TV than it was a movie. So, uh, Warner Brothers, call me. Let's do lunch. You've got your HBO Max thing going now. Let's talk. Some time back, it was announced that NBC Universal Comcast was looking through its back catalog at things it could revive, and that someone in the executive suite had singled out Xena Warrior Princess as a show that needed a reboot. This, of course, got your diehard fans of the original show up in arms. How dare you even think of doing Xena without Lucy Lawless and Renee O'Connor? And I kind of confess to being in that camp, but let's also do the math. Lucy Lawless is in her 50s. That's not a bad thing. Jerry Ryan is too, and she kicked ass in her comeback as Seven of Nine on Star Trek Picard. But you kind of have to come up with a formulation of the show that doesn't figure on putting your legacy lead actress in harm's way every week with crazy stunt work and action sequences. So I kind of wargamed out an idea that would indeed introduce us to a new Xena, venturing into trouble and doing more or less what we would expect Xena to do. Until she quashes some kind of trouble in one village where there's someone who knows better than most, um, that woman is not really Xena. So we've spent the better part of the pilot assuming this is a reboot, until suddenly we, we run into Gabrielle at the end of it, and, whoa, this is not a reboot. So Gabrielle kind of has her own agenda here. It's been 20 years now. And so I don't think I'm spoiling it too much if I point out that at the end of the original series of Xena Warrior Princess, Xena is no longer on this plane of existence as we know it. Over the years, Gabrielle has gradually pulled together some clues and hints and information on a way to possibly bring Xena, the real Xena, back into the real world, into a corporeal existence. And so Gabrielle pulls this new late model Xena aside and tells her what she knows. I know you're not the real Xena, but I'm not going to say anything to anyone if you will help me out with this quest. And I mean, we totally understand Gabrielle has something of a selfless goal here, and yet at the same time, it is totally a selfish goal. And she is perhaps going about meeting that goal in kind of the wrong way. It just doesn't really seem like our Gabby, does it? Over the course of what I would assume would be a 13-episode first season, our new Xena keeps going around righting wrongs while also trying to fulfill this assignment that has been given to her. We find out that this girl's name actually is Xena. Her mother saw the original Xena in action, named her daughter after her. Her mother met a tragic fate that made our new Xena decide to live up to her namesake. We occasionally run into people who might have been on the periphery of the original series, and oddly enough, Gabrielle wants nothing to do with any of them. She doesn't want their help. She doesn't want them to know she's there. At the end of the season, this running side quest is completed, so we have our season arc, and Xena, as in Lucy Lawless Xena, is back among the living. 
she's really not crazy about this newcomer who has sort of assumed her role in every way, though after they fight one big battle together against a mutual enemy, the original Xena realizes, maybe this is not such a bad thing. The kid is living up to the legend. So why was she brought back? And that's when Gabrielle finally steps out of the shadows, and that's when we find out this isn't really Gabrielle. At some point in her life, while trying to find the information she needed to bring Xena back, Gabrielle made a deal with the devil. But it's a devil we know. It's Ares, god of war. It's Gabrielle's body. She's still in there, but Ares is doing the driving. It takes both Xenas to figure out how to get Ares out of there without actually killing Gabrielle. Once Gabby is freed of Ares' influence, she's going to need some recovery time, and of course Xena, the original Xena, is down for that. Really, the two of them might just go off and retire together because the baton has been passed. And that's how you reboot and also continue Xena Warrior Princess. So, uh, hey, folks at the Peacock streaming service, you know where to reach me. I mean, not in a cease-and-desist kind of way. I mean in a will-show-run-for-food kind of way. So, I've rattled off a bunch of <laughs> fairly random ideas that I wargamed out at some point over the past... Oh, it's been more than ten years. I've been doing this for a very long time. And I just hang on to the stuff because it might become an idea that has legs outside of those characters. So, am I working on anything like this right now? Well, off and on, yes... Porgs. Now, how in the world has Disney not given us animated porgs doing animated porg things, either on their island with the fish nuns or in the wider Star Wars universe? I mean, yes, they'd suddenly have to talk, or at least you'd have to show that while the audience is hearing them talk, everyone else just hears them going, Rah! But how do you do a show about the porgs that isn't just a reskin of the Ewoks cartoon from 1985? That's the barrier I keep running into, trying to come up with ideas and then kind of kicking myself because I'm subconsciously recycling stuff that Richard and Wendy Penny already wrote for the Ewoks. Porgs. They're cute. They're feisty. They're curious. If you're chewy, they're what's for dinner, at least until he decides he's not going to fricassee any more porgs. And then they're kind of like his new crew on the Millennium Falcon. One of these days, I'll crack the problem of how to build a story around the porgs. Maybe at that point... I will have a go at animating it and putting it out there. I either get a cease and desist or I get a writing producing gig. Probably a cease and desist, but hey, not for a lack of trying. Porgs. They're what's for dinner. Somebody's got to do it someday. In the meantime, remember to ask me sometime about my idea for a prequel to The Black Hole that would be a straight-up space horror flick. It's kind of fun. Because you find out where Maximilian came from, and Maximilian wasn't always Maximilian. come back down out of the creative cloud <laughs> and talk about shows that people actually have made that don't just exist in my head. Um, Star Trek Lower Decks. You know, we, we have had a year of, um, of more new Star Trek than we have had since 1999, I'm going to say, because the... Um, the August premiere of Star Trek Lower Decks, which is the first animated Star Trek series since the 70s, kicked off what CBS was advertising as 31 weeks of Trek, running right through the holidays and everything. Uh, by the time we get the second week of January 2021, we will have had 31 solid weeks of new episodes of Star Trek, either Lower Decks or Discovery. But... Don't forget, okay, so out of that 31, you've had about 29, 29 weeks that fell in 2020. Don't forget also that you had 10 weeks of Picard at the beginning of the year. And so really, you've had almost 40 weeks of new Star Trek in 2020, which was one of the year's very few bright points. 
Lower Decks may actually be my favorite Star Trek spinoff that CBS All Access has done so far. Um, There are episodes that are fall-down funny, and yet they've got some really neat sci-fi, high-concept stuff going on. It kind of reminds me of Red Dwarf at its best. And, you know, you wind up with stuff like Badgie, who is kind of like (laughs) the Star Trek version of Clippy, except he's the little Star Trek badge. But, you know, if you give him a good kick, he he strangely becomes homicidal. It's like Clippy gone berserk. It's um, it's quite entertaining. Now, I have also really been enjoying Season 3 of Discovery. I was kind of not quite sold on uh, jumping the show nearly a millennium into the future. But now I'm sold on it. This season has been fantastic, and it has also very wisely given uh, a lot of development, a lot of character development time, a lot of screen time to the rest of Discovery's crew, and not just Burnham. Now, Burnham still is kind of the the eye of the storm. You know, she's at the center of the vortex that everyone else is caught up in, but we are finding out all sorts of interesting things about Stamets and Detmer and and Jet Reno, which is Tignataro's character, who I love. Um, Dr. Culber has gotten to become this super smartass this season, and I love it. I love all these characters. And it's it's good to finally see them... You get a sense of them interacting as a crew and not just as kind of sidecars to the Michael Burnham mobile. So I've really been enjoying this season. And of course, there's this giant floofy cat named Grudge who is worthy of her own spinoff. Now, one thing we did not get out of Lower Decks. Now, it's kind of funny. Almost as soon as we met Badgie, a bunch of us started pestering uh, Lou at fansets.com which is a, a maker of licensed enamel pins for... They do Star Trek, they do DC Comics, Firefly, a bunch of stuff. And they have kind of a unique art style. A bunch of us were were, were badgering Lou about Badgie. Is, is Badgie going to become an actual badge? And the answer was, yes, he is. So as of, as of December of 2020... Badgie now lives on both of the cloaks of Geekitude. There is a happy one, and there is kind of a wide-eyed, crazy-looking one. And uh, they live on different jackets. So, yay for Badgie. (laughs) I do want a Lower Decks soundtrack, though. It is such a wonderful throwback to some of the better music from the Next Generation Deep Space Nine era. And there was one episode that had an action scene whose musical exclamation point was totally riffing on the cliffhanger from Best of Both Worlds. Soundtrack boutique labels, you know, Intrada, La La Land, whoever, please take note, I would really like a Star Trek Lower Decks soundtrack. Um, We have finally gotten a drop date of January... I believe it's January 19th or 21st. It's somewhere either side of Inauguration Day for uh, the Orville Season 2 soundtrack from... La La Land Records, which is a two-CD set, and I am really particularly looking forward to the scores from the two-part episode Identity, because that thing was blaster beam fantastic. Uh, By the way, speaking of music, you might remember earlier this year I was mentioning three former members of Jellyfish working under the name Licorice Quartet. They have now set an early January release date for their second EP, Threesome Volume 2, and they are already taking pre-orders, and yeah, your boy has already thrown his money at them. It really, uh, not a not a huge amount of investment for another nice little bite-sized chunk of really good music in that same power-pop vein. Now, a while back I mentioned new Doctor Who action figure box sets, and now there are more on the way. Actually, some of these have already come and gone. (laughs) First up was the uh, Jungles of Mechanus set, referring to the first Doctor's story, The Chase. The product description specifically references that this story had special guest Daleks, which is correct. This was the first TV Dalek story in Doctor Who history, with the Daleks to be shot after 
the first Peter Cushing Doctor Who movie had been made. And since the chase involves a lot of Daleks coming after the Doctor, they actually put out a hit on the Doctor and send the squadron of Daleks with their own time machine to track down the TARDIS and kill the Doctor. Please, just try to tell me that this is not somehow part of the Time War. I will not believe you. Anyway... Interesting point of trivia, two of the movie Daleks with their raised bases and their huge ear lights that flash in time with their voices, they were seen on TV before they were actually seen in the movie because the turnaround on the TV series meant that The Chase aired before Doctor Who and the Daleks premiered in theaters. But with that sly wording about special guest Daleks, what character options really gave us here was a box set of two Peter Cushing movie Daleks. And that's just so tantalizing, because what are the odds that they might actually crank out a figure of the Peter Cushing Doctor? Uh, I know the odds are really long on that one, because it is a completely separate and very tangled set of rights and royalties. But then five years ago, I wouldn't have believed you if you had told me that in the course of one summer, not only would the world be sheltering in place due to a highly contagious and seemingly incurable virus, but that we would get the classic unit lineup, both Romanas and all of the current Doctor's companions at the same time. That would have been crazy talk in 2015. So at this point, I look at character options, possible future releases, the way I look at Big Finish's ability to bring back nearly any classic TV character. Don't discount them because they have already accomplished 5.7 impossible things before breakfast. Now, sadly, the Jungles of Mechanist set is already out of production. And you go to eBay and you will find that people have... People acquired this set specifically to flip it. And so they have opened the box, and they have taken out the Daleks, and they will sell you the box for 30 pounds. Uh, they'll sell you one of the Daleks for 60 pounds. Uh, the original price tag on the whole box was less than 60 pounds. So, um, yeah, I kind of missed that one, which is sad. I hope that they... I hope that they will consider putting that set or those Daleks, or some variation on those Daleks, back in print, so I can uh, finally acquire some Peter Cushing movie Daleks. Character is also doing exactly what I expected them to do with the new likenesses of Romana and the unit characters and so on. They've now announced a few additional box sets, the same lineup of two Romanas and Sarah Jane Smith, this time in different outfits, a couple more Dalek sets, and really the only one that gets my attention is a unit set from supposedly from Terror of the Zygons, this time with a different Sergeant Benton, a kind of generic red shirt unit soldier, and Tom Baker's doctor in the very Scottish getup he wore just for that one four-part story, which is a really cool-looking figure. These will all be out sometime soonish, I expect. I haven't seen them yet, and I don't think the supply chain is working uh, the way anyone expected it to in 2020. So I don't believe these are out yet. I got an email from Entertainment Earth a while back that showed that Hasbro was doing a vintage collection 3 three quarter inch figure of Hondo Onaka from Rebels, but not in Rebels packaging. He'll be on a card back resembling the front of the original 12-back Star Wars Kenner figures. So I realize that's probably tied into Hondo's live-action appearance at the Galaxy's Edge attraction, but it would be so cool to see more Rebels characters in vintage collection packaging, because I had a huge amount of fondness for Rebels. And the latest season of The Mandalorian also demonstrated that everyone really should have been paying a lot of attention to Rebels. Now, even though I have loose figures of nearly every Rebels character from their original release, I think the only major player I did not get that, that was done as a figure was Agent Callus. I would definitely pick up my favorites from the crew in vintage collection form, funds permitting. And speaking of stuff that has an old-school Kenner vibe, Super 7 has a new series of reaction figures out from Back to the Future Part 2. Future Marty, Griff both come with their hoverboards, Old Biff comes with the Sports Almanac, and Future Doc Brown just looks amazing. The fifth figure is past Marty. Marty in the black leather jacket and his hat when he goes back to the 50s to keep the Marty who was already in the 50s from being stopped from restoring the timeline. I loved Back to the Future Part 2. That was my favorite movie out of that trilogy, and I really liked how far it dived into 
time travel and paradoxes. Now, I've already gotten the future Marty and future Doc, future Doc Brown from this line, and uh, future Doc is already hanging on the uh, the wall behind me, my action figure wall that you've seen if you've uh, watched any of my YouTube gaming videos. And future Marty is not hanging up because they punched the card on the wrong side. And so I'm kind of wondering, okay, do I need to cut a hole on the other side to hang this figure correctly? Or should I just let Super 7 know, hey, there was a mispunch here. Could I buy another one of these and have it, you know, make sure that it's punched on the right side? It would be kind of funny to have future Marty traveling with Doctor Who and the TARDIS <laughs> for no readily apparent reason, you know, just because you happen to have the action figures out and open. There are some new tiny arcades out from Super Impulse, Mappy, Burger Time, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and Hello Kitty Pac-Man. <laughs> Two great tastes that taste great together. I really have no idea. I would I would have to get that one to find out. I will probably try to pick up Mappy and Burger Time for my steadily growing mini arcade, which if you must know, I populate a bizarre mix-and-match selection of action figures. Um, with their very own arcade. I have the Stranger Things kids crowded around Dig Dug, as they should be. But then, you know, Dr. Zaius will be playing the, the Donkey Kong Hallmark ornament. By the way, you know we have a new Hallmark arcade ornament from 2020. It was the Joust Machine by Williams. So, uh, happy holidays, buzzard bait. The Hallmark ornaments are absolutely perfect for three and three-quarter inch figures to belly up to. Uh, the tiny arcade needs a little boost to scale properly. Something like an old cassette tape clamshell case, something about that height. When I had my figure display set up in Utah, which I'm still very slowly um, getting back to having set up at my new place in Arkansas, I had a thin slab of styrofoam that I think was part of the packing for a monitor I had gotten. But it was just perfect for boosting the Super Impulse tiny arcades to the correct height for action figures. But I guess enough about my building a working video arcade for my action figures. I've been reading quite a bit lately. bought a few books secondhand. The University of Nebraska Press publishes a series of books called A People's History of Spaceflight. And they are marvelous books. They're thick and very detailed and information-dense. And if you get them brand new, they are not cheap. Periodically on Amazon, you will find used copies that had been retired from a library. And I picked up two of them for about two bucks a piece in great shape. Uh, one of them was even signed by the author. I'm currently reading Wheels Stop, the tragedies and triumphs of the space shuttle program covering the years from 1986 through the end of the shuttle program in 2011, and it is incredibly detailed. Uh, the other one I got, which I haven't started in on yet, uh, you know, I try not to read <laughs> too many books at the same time. The other one is called Infinity Beckoned, covering both American and Soviet robotic missions to the planets of the inner solar system from the early 60s through the end of the 80s. The thing I love about these books is that they always focus on the people and the personalities and the office and organizational politics that caused certain decisions to be made. They read like novels because they are about people instead of being primarily about hardware. And they get into information that I frequently haven't ever seen anywhere else. I'd really recommend these books if you're able to get your hands on them. I'd love a whole shelf of every volume, but they're up to something like 17 books now. So I'm still being kind of selective about which ones I pick up when I am able to. That's right, Puck. I've also been reading Once Upon Atari, How I Made History by Killing an Industry by Howard Scott Warshaw. Uh, Howard Scott Warshaw, of course, is the Atari programmer who created the infamous E.T. cartridge. Um, however, it's unfair to only remember him for that because he also created Raiders of the Lost Ark and especially one of my all-time favorites, Yars' Revenge, which were very good games. Yars' Revenge is consistently, and he points this out in the book, Yars' Revenge is consistently considered one of the best original Atari 2600 titles in that system's entire library, then or now. And so he has the weird distinction of being, you know, kind of the the <laughs> the nadir and the horizon at the same time. You know, he is he is 
the author of simultaneously one of the best and one of the worst games. Although, E.T. really wasn't that bad. Anyone who says E.T. was the worst Atari 2600 game ever, I am assuming never played any of the Mythicon games. Which I probably need to highlight those in future editions of Phosphor.Fossils, which is the... uh, the couple or three times a week video series that I do on YouTube where I play one old video game at a time and try to get into its history. The Mythicon games were just awful. Um, They make E.T. look like a masterwork. But Howard had only five weeks to work on E.T. And then after that, a lifetime of hearing about how terrible it was. So it does not surprise me at all to find out from the book that Howard went into psychotherapy first as a patient, and then went in and studied and got the degree to become a psychotherapist himself, specifically catering to other people in the tech industry with all that is riding on their shoulders. Howard is intimately acquainted with that burden, but he is also a student of creativity, you know, how to use it, how to kind of channel it, And the book is fantastic in that regard because it gets into the psychology of creativity and gets into the psychology of things that hinder creativity. And so it's it's not just a book about video game history. It it, you know it has a very there is some very useful stuff in there for anyone of a creative bent, especially anyone like me who is trying to make you know, trying to make a buck at it, if at all possible, which, you know, I've tried my whole life to do because, you know, whether it was video production or writing books or podcasting or some inadvisable cocktail of all three at the same time, you know, my creativity is sometimes I feel one of the only things I have going for me. You know, it certainly isn't customer service interaction skills, because <laughs> you take a typical customer service type call and hand it to me, um, I'm eventually probably going to go off on somebody and make them regret ever calling. And, you know, next thing you know, Better Business Bureau and lawyers are getting a call, and it's gotten ugly. Um, I am much better off in the creative world trying to somehow ply my trade and make a living. And this book has some very useful insights in that regard, and I cannot recommend highly enough. Um, Again, it's called Once Upon Atari, How I Made History by Killing an Industry, which, by the way, that's that's ironic. He knows that he didn't kill the industry. Um, And I was very relieved to hear that, because so many documentaries have homed in on E.T. as Oh, this destroyed Atari. This destroyed the entire industry. Nintendo had to come along and dig it out of the landfill. No, that's none of that is true. None of that is true. And Howard Scott Warshaw did not make the worst game ever on the Atari by a long shot. I have also embarked on kind of a weird video project, more as a stress-busting exercise than anything. And it's a very cheap stress-busting exercise, too. I've mentioned before that I have a Plex server set up at home, and I've set up a new category within that uh, within that server as an Other Videos category, which basically means Plex knows it's looking for video files in there, but it's not even going to try to correlate the contents to TVDB or IMDB. It is going to go by the file names or let you tell it what each clip is. And what I've got put in there is a lot of music videos and a smattering of short subjects. Um, Short films like Patrick Jean's original Pixels short, which was so much better suited to being a short than an actual full-length movie that was based on it. Uh, Stuff like the European Space Agency's Ambition short film, which was this wonderfully evocative little piece to explain the Rosetta mission to the public. Uh, Sean Doran's lovely time-lapse videos of images from various space missions often set to music, stuff like that. I already had a whole subcategory of DVD releases of music videos that several artists had put out in years past. So I had DVDs of Tori Amos videos, Crowded House videos, Split Ends videos, Peter Gabriel, Weird Al. I had a whole box set of little chopped-up individual performances from Midnight Special yeah, the early 70s or early to late 70s um, concert show that had been released. 
And yeah, I've been supplementing those with quite a few things snagged from YouTube and little things that had accumulated over the years in various folders. Now they're in one folder, and it's not uncommon for me to open that part of my Plex server and hit the shuffle play button. In a way, I kind of think of it as a random night flight generator. In fact, the that part of my Plex server is called the Nocturnal Aviation Simulator. For those of you who weren't kids in the U.S. in the early 80s, Night Flight was an overnight show on USA Network, which was a cable network. It aired only late on Friday and Saturday nights, and it was this bizarrely ADHD smattering of music videos, short documentaries on really offbeat subjects, short films both serious and anything but, and oddball stuff like episodes of Ultraman. I would swear that this is where I first saw the UK show Monkey as well, though apparently... That's my own personal little Mandela effect, since there is nothing anywhere that corroborates my memory of seeing monkey episodes as part of Night Flight. Really what I've constructed is kind of my own little random music video jukebox, but it'll also throw other stuff at me. And again, the effect is a little like Night Flight, though not like Night Flight, because there was an element of discovery to Night Flight, and in this case the decks are stacked with stuff I already know I like, but I just don't know what order I'll see it in. But it's something fun to do. Sometimes I will see someone post a link to a video I haven't even thought about in ages. And that leads me to a spree of grabbing stuff from YouTube and adding it to the music videos folder, which is, uh, let's see, there are now 56 gigs of music videos and oddball random short subjects in there. I've got the music video folder subdivided and organized so that I can, if I like, create a different version of that section of the Plex server so there is a more decidedly kid-friendly version of it. Um, you know, it's got all the They Might Be Giant stuff in there, but it will never pull up, well, you know, that one Divinals video? You know the one. Okay, so I've kind of tiptoed around it. Let's finally talk about The Mandalorian just a little bit. Uh, the second season of The Mandalorian has started and finished on Disney+, Plus. again, running eight episodes. Eight very good episodes they were. I really enjoyed seeing Katie Sackhoff get to play the character in live action that she had previously voiced for animation in Star Wars Rebels. I was originally kind of conflicted about the whole bringing Boba Fett back from the dead thing. Not really back from the dead, but uh, definitely the worse for wear. Although I am enough of a fan of Temuera Morrison that I was, you know, once he was, especially in that sixth episode, the one directed by Robert Rodriguez, uh, you know, once he was in action saying the lines and sort of justifying the character's continued existence, you know, beyond this one very brief cameo in the first episode of the season, I was totally sold on him being back. Now, I'm still conflicted as to this whole thing about a spin-off Boba Fett series, but just the fact that Morrison and Rodriguez are on board for that, and, you know, they proved to be a killer combination in that one episode of The Mandalorian, I'll, I'll definitely check it out. I, I will at least check it out. The Disney Plus slate of Star Wars streaming series that has been announced reminds me kind of terrifyingly of Big Finish Productions and the sheer number of Doctor Who and Doctor Who spinoffs that they produce in audio form that I have not been able to afford to keep up with and even if affording them was not a factor, I don't know how I would have the time to keep up with all of Big Finish's Doctor Who-related output. The sheer volume of Star Wars that Disney Plus is about to put on our screens reminds me of that feeling, that sort of how in the world am I going to keep up with all of this stuff feeling. We, we will see what happens. We are coming to a point where eventually I, I will run into a Star Trek series that is not my thing. I will run into a Star Wars series that is not my thing. My concern about the Boba Fett series kind of stems from my memories of not being able to connect with the TV series Breaking Bad. 
I need there to be somebody to root for. Uh, Boba Fett needs to prove to me that he is that man. Now, I'm totally jazzed that Tamara Morrison is going to be back in the armor for that show. What I'm concerned about is that they're going to have to somehow flip the script a bit and give him some kind of a code of honor to adhere to where he's not just gunning people down and being a badass because that wouldn't be much of a show. So I am interested to see how that is going to play out. So having covered that ground, let's talk about that last episode of Mandalorian Season 2. I have many thoughts. <laughs> now, the notion that Mando had come up with a a Jedi youngling, yeah, maybe, yeah, a 50, 51-year-old youngling, but a youngling nonetheless, and a youngling by the standards of that species. The idea that this was a, a Jedi in training who had been snuck out of the temple before Anakin lost his mind and started, you know, killing kids and everyone else. The idea that this was a still a potential Jedi trainee sort of logically leads you to Luke Skywalker showing up and taking him off to train him. That being said, let me kind of devil's advocate myself because this was really the first thought that I had the moment I figured out you know, who the occupant of the lone X-Wing had to be. My, my initial thought was this. Oh, so we did such a good job creating a show that was not Skywalker adjacent in any way, but now we've decided it's got to be Skywalker adjacent. The Star Wars universe is bigger than the story of the Skywalker family, and yet we have never quite gotten away from the Skywalkers. There's always a Skywalker in the mix. Um, Rogue One, you've got two of them in there. You've got Leia at the end, you've got Vader at the end, so Rogue One doesn't manage to be non-Skywalker adjacent. Solo... It manages to be pretty good at being non-Skywalker adjacent, but it's basically about maneuvering Han Solo into place so he can meet Luke and Obi-Wan eventually in the first Star Wars movie. Uh, all of the Star Wars media tends to be Skywalker adjacent, and the thing that had me so impressed with The Mandalorian from the outset was that it didn't seem to touch on the Skywalker story at all. And, you know, we started flirting with being Skywalker adjacent the moment that Ahsoka showed up. And the moment that Boba Fett showed up. The, you know, the connections, the, you know, we started to be fewer degrees of separation away from Luke Skywalker. And then he shows up in the season finale. I'm I'm not even going to address the shortcomings of the CG work in that final scene because I think that ground has been pawed very thoroughly by other critics. But what I question, what I still find myself questioning is you know at some point you're going to have to get Grogu back in the show because he is such a part of the mix. He is such a part of what makes the show special. I know I really question how interested I would be in The Mandalorian if it went a season or two without the kid in the show. Because the real appeal for me, The Mandalorian, the first two seasons, was really like the ultimate single father show on TV for me. I know that probably brings some very colorful questions to light about my own experience as a single father, but the combination of Mando and Grogu is the heart of the show. I don't see the show getting very far without that. And so this means at some point, 
we have to go back to Luke again and get the kid back. And so here we are yet again, another piece of Skywalker-adjacent Star Wars media. I'm still not entirely sure how I feel about that. And that very conflicted place is, you know, pretty much where I'm left with The Mandalorian right now. I'm, uh, I'm interested to see how it plays out from here. Other than that, I have finally moved from the very dire town of Dyer, Arkansas, to Fayetteville, Arkansas. I lived in Dyer from the beginning of March 2020 through mid-October, really since the beginning of the big dam emergency, and that place was just horrible. Any apartments or rental houses or duplexes that I toured while trying to find the new place, which I am finally in a duplex in Fayetteville, the people doing the tours probably thought I was completely insane because I was asking questions like, the toilet does work all the time, right? Does the oven stay on for more than half an hour, or does it short out and stop working? Do the burners on the stove work, or do they short out when you try to warm them up? Do armies of insects emerge from little cracks where the wall meet the ceiling and invade the house? Do garden slugs suddenly show up in the kitchen? Does the heat work, or do I need to sleep fully dressed under every blanket I can find between November and March? Is there an interior wall that's leaning at an angle where the angle actually increases significantly over six months? Is there really a bathtub, or is this just a half-assed shower stall constructed out of wood that doesn't look like it's been treated to withstand constant exposure to water? Now, that all probably sounds pretty bonkers, but that is just a sampling of the issues I had at the place in Dyer. That building really should have been torn down long before I had a chance to occupy it for a few months. At about the three-month mark in that place, a friend of mine was so upset about the lack of a working toilet and the fact that I was stepping outside behind the building under cover of darkness and answering nature's call like I was on a camping trip and hoping that there were no witnesses. She finally rented a porta potty and placed it just out, had it placed just outside the front door of that house, which was marvelous. It was a hell of a lot better than the options I'd had prior to that, but apparently that broke some city ordinance and that finally got the property owner involved, basically because I had gotten him in trouble with the city and embarrassed him. He finally had a new toilet put in. Prior to that, he was not going to budge or do anything about the fact that the original toilet just continually backed up and would overflow the contents of the sewer system into the bathroom if I didn't shut it off. I am so glad to have left that whole raft of problems behind. So, I looked at this duplex in Fayetteville, signed the lease, paid the deposit. I have a new address. <laughs> it's a done deal. I have moved. Everything is out of the place in Dyer. And, you know, this place isn't perfect, but everything works. I'm so happy with it. And yet the past few months where I was living in Dyer, and yet those months where I was living in Dyer, were quite a revelation. I... I sometimes find myself having to check my own privilege, and those months have made me aware that there are probably far too many people living in conditions a lot like that or worse. They're having to raise families in those conditions. No, I wasn't. My renting the place in Dyer seemed to have broken my family into two pieces. Again, substandard living conditions can whittle away a family's health, at the very least its mental health, or it can break a family altogether. We need to stop letting that happen. Too much of the calculus of rental properties is figured in favor of the property owners, and the renters are left at a disadvantage in terms of pricing, in terms of the safety and suitability of the property, and far too frequently, both. That calculus needs to be recomputed. I don't think anyone's expecting a free place to live, but I also don't think anyone should have to expect to live in absolute squalor. There has to be a middle ground that can be achieved, and property managers who cannot achieve that balance need to not be property managers anymore, quite frankly. There should be some oversight. 
As often is the case, this is something that will happen on the local level. So I hope you paid attention during the election to your local elections, your local candidates, and their platforms. Every race up and down the ticket mattered for the record. You know, the big ones at the top, yes, those kind of define the soul of the nation, but the local races define the people who will be the buffer between the rest of us and what comes down from the top. Just a little something for you to think about there, along with whether or not you could turn Twister into a TV series. Thank you for listening to Don't Give This Tape to Earl, a podcast of extraordinary magnitude from thelogbook.com. You can find the podcast at thelogbook.com slash this tape on FeedBurner, on Stitcher, and on iTunes. It's not really monthly or quarterly. It just kind of sneaks up on you like a guy in a trench coat and shouts boo as he opens the trench coat and reveals that he's not actually a guy, but 34 porgs huddled under there. If you like this and the logbook's other podcasts and video casts, feel free to support us at patreon.com slash the logbook. And you too can join the logbook legion. Thanks to all of our current supporters, Kevin, Ferg, Darwin, Cindy, Paul, and Charles, and Mark. Haven't forgotten you, Mark. Welcome back. If you're not up for an ongoing contribution, that's cool. I totally understand you. Feel free to buy us a coffee at ko-fi.com slash thelogbook or grab original designs from the logbook at thelogbook.redbubble.com. You can also visit thelogbook.com slash store to pick up goodies from Amazon, eBay, or even sign up for a subscription to CBS All Access. And all of that helps us out a lot with hosting costs and producing all of this content that I hear the kids love these days. The show's theme music is by Jazar at betterwithmusic.com, licensed under Creative Commons. The show itself is researched, written, and hosted by Earl Green. That's me, and I'm almost out of tape. Don't Give This Tape to Earl is a production of thelogbook.com. 